Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Friday, February the 10th. This is episode 838 of the Survival Podcast. But I'll tell you a secret today, for me, when I'm doing this, is actually February the 9th, a Thursday, because I am uh, visiting family uh, today, and uh, I don't. I try not to leave you guys without a show. I know that did happen uh, this week due to uh, scheduling conflict with a guest, but you know, man, I really try to never leave you guys without a show. And I'm sorry I left you without a show one day this week, but it damn sure wasn't gonna happen twice. So I uh, doubled up on the Thursday and got you guys uh, some extra content so that we have a full week here, at least as close as we can get. So uh, again, my apologies for missing that show this week. Again, it was not intentional. All right. Uh, with that, we got a great show today because it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And Friday is the day that, you know, we take people that in the last week or two have picked up a phone and matched some numbers and matched the numbers 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. That's the think line. You call in and you leave your comment, your question, or your idea, or your thought. And, uh, you know, I take about 10 to 12 of them each week and uh, use them on the air. The best way to uh, get your call on the air is make sure you call from a good cell, uh, cell signal if you're calling from a cell phone so I don't get broken calls or a landline to find a quiet area and don't run chainsaws or motorcycles when you call me. Uh, that does happen on occasion. It's not usually chainsaws or motorcycles. I'm making a point there. A lot of noise in the background. This week I had one great call I would have loved to put on the air, but the caller was talking real quiet like this because he was in a crowded place with a lot of noise around, and I guess he didn't want people to hear what he was saying. So the people in the background were actually louder than he was. Can't use that kind of call, folks. you got to find a quiet area uh, to make your calls, and that will get you a lot better chance of being on the air. Make your point really quick up front. If you want to give details, do it just like you can send me emails. Make your point, ask your question, then give the details. You'll find that it will work better for you. I know a lot of you guys might be nervous to call, thinking you might be played on the air, and uh, sometimes I can tell that hangs you up. If you, if you know the question before you call and you just get on the phone and say, Jack, my question is, bam, or my point is, bam, or I saw an article that it said, boom, you'll find that the rest of the call will be easy. It'll just be like you're talking to me on the phone, like you would to your friends, and you won't worry about the fact that somebody else is going to hear you later on. All right, with that, I've got to go ahead and get on moving here. Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors before we take your call. Sponsor of the day, number one, Emergency Essentials. You'll find them at BePrepared.com. Uh, that's pretty cool that they have that domain. That must mean they were pretty prepared to get out there and, and get the domain BePrepared.com before anybody else did. Like maybe, I don't know, the Boy Scouts or something like that. Anyway, Emergency Essentials uh, specializes specifically in long-term storage food and a lot of other prepping needs. They have a lot of great information as well on getting started. They have food calculators to calculate your caloric needs for long-term storage. There's about anything else you can think of. Get on over there to BePrepared.com. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that here in just a minute because I keep getting emails from you guys about a .org thing. But we're going to hold off until we take care of our other sponsor. Because our other sponsor is one of my favorite sponsors to deal with personally. I am a, a, a customer of every sponsor we have. If I would not do business with a sponsor personally, if I wouldn't spend my money with them personally, I would not have them on the show. There's not a sponsor of the show that I have not spent my own hard-earned money with. Um, there's somebody that I spend a lot of money with on an ongoing basis. I don't want to say a lot of money, but I spend money with often. 
because uh, they're really not expensive, and that is Western Botanicals. And that's because I really care about my health, and I really don't like mainstream medicine and doctors. If I give a yield sign in my spleen during a car accident, or if I'm having a heart attack laying on the ground, please take me to mainstream medical uh, hospital as quickly as possible, because I know they can save my life. For dealing with uh, with avoiding chronic conditions, though, I think mainstream medicine has fallen on its face. Now, this isn't medical advice or anything, but I just encourage you to learn about ways that you can stay healthy and improve your health and take care of simple things without using harsh medications. And herbals are a great way to do that. So when I need something I'm not growing in my backyard or I don't have in my cabinet, I pick the phone up or I get online and I get in touch with westernbotanicals.com. I order it and they send it to me. It's always great. I know it's either organically grown or wildcrafted. And it's of the highest quality. And when I'm not sure what I need, I pick the phone up and real people that actually give a damn about me talk to me. And they don't talk to me any different than they would talk to any of you from the audience. I don't get special treatment. I just get the special treatment that everybody gets there. And they help me figure out what I need and they get it shipped out to me right away. And uh, they tell me how to use it. And they do that in a very professional, very caring way. And they're a great company located right here in the United States, uh, 100% U.S. owned and employed. And uh, get in touch with them today if you need anything. Again, they're at westernbotanicals.com. They also support the show heavily, including the Member Support Brigade, by giving away uh, the first free first year of their preferred membership for free, which would normally cost you 50 bucks, And that gives you 25% off everything that they sell. And then it's, if you do decide you want to get it uh, going forward after your first free year because you like it, instead of being 50 bucks a year like it is for everybody else, for MSB members, it's only 25 so it's half off for the continuing years and free for the first year. That covers your entire cost of membership in the MSB, so they're a great supporter as well. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, that's a great way to stay in touch with me, see what's going on. I do have a YouTube video coming out. I'm going to try to do it today before I get out of town. If not, I'll do it on Monday. Uh, on my thoughts about Doomsday Preppers and my story about uh, dealing with one of their producers. Uh, I've listened to everybody out there, folks. I really have. I've listened to you all. I've listened to the, I'd say, 80% of you that want me to do the video, and I've listened very, very carefully to the 20% of you that don't want me to do the video. And I've decided I have to. And, and mainly because a lot of the people that are telling me not to are telling me things like, Jack, don't go on that show. Well, that's not the... It's like, okay, so my own people don't even understand where I stand. I'm never going to go on that show. I'm never going to have anything directly to do with that show. A couple of you said, don't give them free publicity. Folks, I'm not worried about giving Nat Geo free publicity. I'm not too big for my britches. I know where I'm at. Me giving publicity to Nat Geo is below my pay grade, as we used to say in the military. Uh, there's nothing I can do that's really going to make them more popular or less popular. That's not the point here. I believe that the show that they're doing mischaracterizes us. I believe that the man running the show has no integrity because he told me he doesn't to my face. And I believe that there's going to be a lot of people saying a lot of nasty things because of this show. And I want to put out a counterpoint that anybody can use to say, if you want the real story, go here and listen to this. And I want people to know who we really are and what we're really about. And I can't do that just on the show. I've got to put that in a video format. Uh, it's just the only way that's going to work. It's got to be short and concise and only about that one thing. And I'm talking about something that's maybe two to five minutes long. And uh, so that's going to be coming out either today or early next week. And I want you guys to be uh, feel free to use that uh, wherever you see people saying stuff like, these people are crazy, these people are nuts, oh, they're all going to, you know, they all think the world's going to end. Because a lot of the people in the show, the people they're actually featuring, those people are being mischaracterized because it's very easy for a lot of people, when someone wants to put you on television, to be manipulated, to say yes because you want to be on television, and then by the time you get there, um, you realize that you're being manipulated, but you feel like you have to go through with certain things. 
And uh, I have nothing negative to say about the people themselves that are being featured, but I have a lot to say about the way that the whole thing is being presented, the way our movement's being presented, and I've got to stand up and say it. So that'll be coming out on YouTube. Real quick, before we take your first call, I wanted to uh, also tell you something. Often when I mention uh, emergency essentials, I said they're at BePrepared.com, and I said they, they got there even before the Boy Scouts did. I get a lot of you guys emailing me, go, Jack, no, that's because the Boy Scouts have to have BePrepared.org. They're, they're a, a charitable, you know, non-profit. They have to have a .org. I, I want you guys to know this, because it's really not about, it's kind of just a funny thing I'm saying when I say that. It's not, I don't really know how that worked out, you know, but it is kind of ironic to me that they own BePrepare.com. But what I want you guys to know is that just because you see a .org doesn't mean it's a charitable organization or doesn't mean anything. Anybody, anywhere that wants to can buy a .org domain. I own many of them. Okay, so .org means absolutely no more than .net, .com, or .anything. The, about the only ones that matter are .gov, .gov, and .edu. Those are about the only ones that are you know mainstream in the United States that have any kind of actual restriction on who can buy or own them. The rest of them are open to everybody. And there's absolutely no reason, and there's nothing that prevents a nonprofit from owning a .com, and there's nothing that prevents a private entity for profit owning a .org. So please, if you're ever using that to make your decisions about who to support or who not to support, stop doing it. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. .org means nothing. It's just another TLD or top-level domain. If you'd like to test that for yourself, think of a website you'd like to own with .org and run over to Domains With Us or GoDaddy or someplace like that, HostGator, and see if you can buy it. And they'll sell it to you that fast. And no one will ever ask you to fill out a form. No one will ever ask you to prove anything. And if you are a nonprofit, no one is able to say a damn thing if you use a .com, a .net, or a .mobi, or a .anything, or .co. It doesn't matter. Oh, one more thing for you guys. I know a lot of you guys listen to me on like uh, iPhones and stuff like that. I put this out on Facebook, but I haven't I haven't put it out in the air yet. If you now go to tspc.co, tspc.co, it'll redirect you to the Survival Podcast and save you some typing uh, when you're using your smartphones and stuff like that. And I guess it's even good for the web. Anyway, we've got everything wrapped up for today with uh, the housekeeping. You guys know about the MSB, so we'll let it go there. Uh, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack, this is Travis from Wisconsin. Um, I got a question about fuel storage. I'm wondering if those blue 55-gallon drums, those, they're number two. I'm wondering if they're safe for gasoline or diesel. Love the show. Thanks. I think I already answered this, and maybe from the same person by email, but it's something I've been asked a lot about, so I figure I'd go ahead and throw it in a call-in show because it's real quick and easy to answer. The answer is uh, yes, uh, with one caveat. Uh, most IBC totes are made of a high-density polyethylene number two, and if that's what you're looking at, if that's what you have, that's the same thing used to make fuel cans you buy at the store. So I'd, I've actually never seen one that's not of high-density polyethylene number two, but I've been told they do exist. So that's the one thing you want to look at is what the construction is, and if it's high-density uh, high polyethylene number two, you can put diesel, kerosene, gasoline, anything like that, and you just want to make sure it's cleaned out well, uh, and you deal with you know if there's any water residues or anything like that, and there you want to stabilize fuel. Uh, great question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Good morning. Uh, first, uh, I have a uh, comment. I wanted to uh, say that Marjorie's food production CD is amazing. Uh, she did a great job with it. Uh, we've really enjoyed watching it. Uh, second is we actually also had an awesome experience with Shelf Reliance. Uh, your sponsors rock, and I uh, appreciate you uh, finding such good folks. Now to uh, a question for you. Um, we actually have just bought a, uh, a retreat, and we have a bunch of area around our windows to protect 
I want to put in some type of edible plant, and I was curious if you had any suggestions, specifically for things that could go under windows. I was thinking of uh, raspberry and blackberry bushes, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to start discoloring the siding over time. So, any thoughts on uh, any kind of uh, edible plants that we could use to, uh, you know, provide some, uh, make it a little bit more difficult for folks to get in the windows would be great. Thanks again. The show is awesome. We appreciate everything you do. Well, I'm glad you've uh, had great experiences with our sponsors. Like I said in the introduction segment, I don't have a single sponsor I haven't spent my own money with, and I wouldn't have a single sponsor that I wouldn't be willing to spend my own money with. I think it's important for the integrity of the show and the advertising program that I do business with that way. So thank you for acknowledging uh, that they've given you good service and you've gotten good product for them. That means I'm doing my job for you guys right. On uh, protection around the windows, a lot of people would do holly and stuff like that, and there's nothing edible there. Uh, I have a couple suggestions. One, depending on, on how high up the window is and how much of a barrier you want to create, um, you could do something like plant a filbert hedge, and that will create a, a, pr a pretty good uh, physical barrier. It's not going to be real uh, tangled and, and what have you as far as cutting people like with, with thorns or what have you, the way blackberry would, but it's going to build a very dense structure. And then, and then you could do this or just this, Rosa Ragusa, old-style roses, those things are like barbed wire. And they grow those beautiful hips. You can make jelly out of them. You can eat them. Uh, they're good for a whole bunch of things. They're a huge high source of vitamin C. Rosa Ragusa uh, are just awesome for any type of place that you want to create a barrier. Uh, and, and so... When you're looking at windows, you may not want a big old filbert hedge there, too. You, you might want to just go with Rosa Ragusa. Uh, don't use, you know, these new fancy pretty roses that get little tiny hips or no hips at all. Get good old-fashioned Rosa Ragusa uh, types of roses. There's all different colors, so they're beautiful, and they produce food. And uh, you don't want to try to climb through a barrier of them. Trust me, you will... You will wish to God you'd gone somewhere else. And understand the limitation there as well, though. Uh, there's nothing you can plant that I can't get rid of with a machete in a, in a, in a few slices uh, uh, and still get in. So um, it's just a deterrent. It's not it's not a complete safeguard, uh, but it does make people less likely to kind of peer in there and see if it's worth getting in. Uh, and it probably is going to make them a little slower uh, in in doing so and think a little more. And one of the biggest ways we keep bad guys away is to make them think I could get caught, it's not worth it, that type of thing. So that would be my best suggestion out of everything else you could plant there. Raspberries and blackberries, your problem there is you have to prune them back every year. Uh, and you only really get a good dense protection when they're in full growth. So there's going to be some period of time where you're going to have to prune them back. Rosa Ragusa, you would prune into the shape that you want it, and you have a pretty permanent structure there. The same with filberts. The filberts, again, would be, or hazelnuts, would be more of a physical barrier, and it would be more of a long-term thing. So you could layer them, kind of the Rosa Ragusa in front of the, uh, of the, uh, filbert hedge, and kind of do a double up. Now, Understand that if you do that, you're going to end up in a situation where you, uh, you're going to have to deal with your Rosa Ragusas when you're trying to get to your hazelnuts. Um, but, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. Wear some long sleeves and be careful and, and uh, understand you just probably won't get them all. 
So there's there's a couple ways you could do that. I guess the other thing you could do is there are some forms of gooseberry that are quite thorny. So on a shady side of a house where your roses may not do as well, uh, maybe you could go with some gooseberries and plant them very close together and form more of a hedge. Uh, that would be kind of a you know you could do some uh, some hazelnuts as a as a fence, even make a perimeter fence out of hazelnut, and uh, then you do close in and, and do something more like your rosa goose on your shady side. Do your uh, gooseberries. Just thinking there. Um, give those things a try. Let me know if you have any further questions about it, and uh, we'll try to help you out. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Shannon in California. Um, I got a question for you about layering and uh, permaculture. Uh, it's kind of a riddle. Uh, I have a guy who can who brings me about an F600 dump truck full of horse manure uh, about once a month. Um, I have a neighbor who has. A thousand, about a thousand square feet of three to four foot deep hay. That's hay, not straw. Um, it's composted and it's ancient, like half a century. Uh, stuff falls apart in your hand. And um, I can occasionally get truckfuls of wood chips up to my place, and I can also chip myself, but it's really slow. And I'm kind of wondering. Uh, what order should I layer this stuff in my yard, which is about a I've got about an acre but of a yard, uh, but I can also expand out to the other 99 acres that isn't fenced in. Uh, any advice on that would be good. I'm, I'm kind of having a uh, which, which layer first and how it's coming in and what order and all of that sort of thing. Anyhow, love the show. Talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Jack. It's Shannon from California again. I forgot something. Um, I just wanted to make a suggestion to people out there that the way I got all of that hay, uh, the thousand square feet by three to four feet tall, and uh, is by uh, asking around out in the countryside for people that have a barn full of rotten hay. Um, seems like a, this is the, this is the second catch I've got from people that are like, yeah, sure, it's from an old cattle operation. It's just out there rotting. Take it because it's a fire hazard, especially in California. Uh, the horse manure comes from a local ranchette, you know, one guy with four horses on ten acres, and it just keeps coming. I just told him I'll take it as long as the horses make it. And then the wood chips um, are from landscapers who uh, abandon their truckloads out on the in the countryside rather than uh, in turnouts rather than pay the dump. So that's where I'm getting all this stuff for free. So if you know anybody, or I mean if there's anybody out there that wants massive piles of uh, any one of those three things, that's where I'm getting mine. Uh, talk to you later. Bye. Okay, well, the one thing my concern is is the horse manure. You want to make sure that stuff's composted. Uh, and so let's say you have the horse manure, which is a high nitrogen. You have the straw, which is a good carbon. You have the wood chips, which could add more carbon, especially if you could add something, a little bit of a green something to there uh, as well. You, could, you have a pretty good compost pile going. So you're going to kind of want to compost at least some of this stuff, especially the manure, instead of going straight to the ground with it. You... You really don't absolutely have to, but you're going to get much better results if you do. Um, horse manure is not real, real hot like a chicken manure, but it's not like real cold either like a, uh, let's say, a rabbit manure. It's kind of in an area where it should be composted, but you could layer it and let it compost itself.
You could do that. On the layering, you could pretty much do anything you want, but don't put the wood chips on the bottom. Put the wood chips. The wood chips go on the top. Uh, we'll have another question later on in the show today that has to do with uh, wood chips. And wood chips, if you're going to use them, you're either going to use them as kind of a pseudo-hugelkultur where they're in a big block, a big lump underground, or you're going to use them as a mulch on top. When you turn wood chips into soil, um, you generally end up with a situation where they actually create compaction issues. I've never done them in a layered system anywhere other than as a top mulch. In theory, in theory here, if thinking this through, if I built a, a wood chip layer of let's say four inches, I should have a little hugaculture thing going on down in there. But to me, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's not really a soil layer. Uh, it's either a reserve layer of moisture and nutrient, or it's a top dressing layer. And I do not prefer wood chips for hugaculture, but if they're there, fine. I mean, it's not really that, you know, if that's what you have, then fine. But I think there's a lot of logs out there, and wood chips are best on the top. But if you did, you know, a layer of straw, a layer of compost and manure, a layer of straw, a layer, you could almost do that forever. You really could without no, without any concerns whatsoever. It's going to mix together. It's going to continue to break down. Um, if you want to go and you want to start an area that's never been done before, lay some, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says. I really don't. Lay some cardboard or lay a big thick layer of newspaper down. Soak it to the bone wet. Put a layer of that straw on top of it. Put a layer of manure on it. Put another layer of straw, another layer of manure, and throw wood chips on top of that. You can grow anything you want in there. Um, Paul can worry about the fact that there might be some tiny chemical residue of clay bound some crap in the in the box if he wants. I respect his opinion. I respect his choice. But I'm going to tell you that you breathe in about 50 million toxins a day. And we don't want you to go adding as you know excessive amounts of anything. But there's been way too many people doing this for way too long, way too successfully in the permaculture movement to uh, to ignore using things like that. Now, I do want to bring, this is an opportunity to bring something up. Paul talked about finding places where newspaper had been laid on the ground under a tree, mulched heavily over top of, and a tree was dying, and when they dug up the ground, the newspaper, you still read the print on it, and it was dry as a bone, and it wouldn't let the water get through to the ground, and uh, it was actually dry, uh, drying out the ground under, under the tree instead of holding moisture in And uh, I've always been concerned about that. But I learned something in the Urban Permaculture DVD from Jeff Lawton. When you lay newspaper down, if you lay a thin layer, and if that thin layer does not end up breaking down, it will do exactly what Paul said it was. It was going to do. That's why you don't lay thin layers of newspaper. Uh, Jeff says you lay Sunday edition thick. So you think of a Sunday edition of the newspaper folded open so that it's just like, you know, it's folded flat and it's real, real thick and you open it up and lay it down on the ground. That's how thick your newspaper, and you soak it to the bone. And then it actually helps bring moisture through, wick moisture back up, retain moisture, hold moisture. But if you, especially in a dry environment, use a thin layer of newspaper, it can do that thing that Paul was talking about and actually dry things out instead of keeping things wet. So when you're layering, when you're using newspaper, Sunday edition thick, according to Jeff Lawton, which to me is at least a half of an inch. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jamie from Portland again. Um, I just had one quick question here. I am having a real problem with uh, cats, not only my own, but neighborhood cats, using my garden beds as uh, litter boxes. So I'm wondering if you know of any tips or tricks to keep them out of the garden since 
I can't really, you know, watch over it 24 hours a day to make sure they're not using it. Um, that's about it. Keep up the good work. Thanks. I want to tell you, I think the easiest thing you can do for this is get a motion-activated sprinkler, and it'll work with dogs, too. Uh, maybe a couple of them if you have a bigger area you're trying to keep them out of. I actually found a YouTube video that's funny and lame at the same time. You can see one working. A guy had a cat that was constantly doing the same thing in his backyard, not his garden, it's just his backyard, and he wanted him out of there. And he set up one of these motion-activated sprinklers. You see the cat coming and, you know, doing this business over and over again. And then uh, you see what happens when he puts a sprinkler in, and the cat is chased away every single time, and that works good. Now, he's got, like, the Tweety Bird from, remember, you know, Sylvester and the Tweety Bird singing in the background and going, bad old putty cats. And it's kind of lame that way, but it does show how effective it is. I will include it in today's show notes, but to me, it's the easiest dadgone solution. It really is. You set that up. I know they're not cheap, but they're not really expensive either. And and I think that this is what you'll find with them. Once a cat realizes, every time I go over here, I get sprayed with water, they stop coming. You know, it might they're hard-headed. It might take them a while, but they'll get it. And I think it's just so simple. It's so easy. And I don't think that, you know, I've seen people do things like put mothballs around an area, and they don't seem to care about that. I've seen sprays that are supposed to keep them away, and they don't care about that. They're just looking for a place that, that, that works for them to do their thing. They want soft soil. They can dig in and cover things up because that's what cats do. Um, that's fine, but they need to go do it somewhere else, not in your vegetable garden. It's really not what you want in your vegetable garden or your, or your fruits or, you know, orchards or whatever, you know. So anywhere you want them gone. Put that in, and I think you'll see that it works well. And uh, check the video out on YouTube and see uh, see what how a cat responds to it. Pretty much, they run their ass away, and uh, uh, they don't get a chance to do what you don't want them to do. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric calling from Scafoos, Oregon. In episode 830, you discussed Google's new privacy policy. I know it is increasingly difficult in a connected world to maintain full privacy. I would really like to hear your comments regarding the various privacy tools available in web browsers. Firefox supports many add-ons to help secure a user's privacy, and Internet Explorer has features such as in-private browsing. Given your background in Internet marketing, are these privacy tools effective and worth the effort? Thanks for all you do, Jack. I learn something new from your show every day. Well, I don't hurt anything, but, I mean, I think that any illusion of true privacy today is... is uh is only an illusion. I also want to speak as a, as a person that, that does run websites and has worked as an internet marketer, what most websites want when they're collecting your data. They want to know where you came from, how you got there, what you did when you got there, and where you left and why you left. And did you buy or join or whatever, and why or why not. They don't want your information so that they can uh, report you to the government or something like that. They don't want your information um, for anything other than so that they can do a better job of providing services to you. And most of the web analytics and things like that that are out there are not going to know that you're John Smith that lives at 123 Fake Street in you know, Joe Blow, Indiana, unless you have an account there and you filled out that information. The problem becomes when people like Google know that about you because you do have an account with them and begin you to track you across platforms, and that forms a much more individualized picture. I think that there's two worlds here. One is a corporate America BS, and there is some problems there because people will sell your information. I think there's a lot more of that going on with people buying iPhone apps and Facebook and stuff like that than general web browsing, though. 
My bigger concern is that as all this data is accumulated, it, what prevents someday from the government saying to these companies, provide us the data on the people that we want to know about? Um, that is my bigger concern. So what I'm going to tell you is that if you're doing anything that you don't want people to know about, don't be doing it online. I mean, that, that, I, I, I mean, I just don't think you're ever going to get full privacy protection. Now, there's things you can do. You can go through proxies. You can go to a website like HideMyAss.com when you're browsing, and that provides some level of protection. You can go from one proxy and then in that proxy go to another. A proxy is a browser where you're not where you are. Your, your person would see you as being from a different IP. Well, that's fine until you start doing things like going to forums and stuff like that because you know who else uses those proxies? Spammers. So when you come in for those proxies and you're using those IP addresses, when you start joining forums and things like that, don't be surprised if forum owners don't ever let you join and ban you before you get started because when they see an IP that's had you know 1,600 reports of spammer activity in the last month, and that's what we do, you're not, you're not getting on forums. So you could always join the forum and then come in through a proxy when you log in, and as long as that proxy hasn't become a true problem blocked by the person that owns the server wholly and fully, which happens as well. So I mean... There's limits to whatever you can do. If you really wanted as much privacy as possible, the best way to do it, honestly, would be to create a fake fake identification. Create form, a uniform forum handle that's a, it's an anonymous forum handle. Uh, create a Facebook account that's fake, a Google, and make them all the same, like, the, like you're John Smith. And give John Smith an address that doesn't exist. Give a complete profile that doesn't exist and do... Your activity online is John Smith or Joe Blow or Jose Cuervo or whatever. And that'll give you some, but you still have IP back to address. I can, I can honestly, with certain tools, if I want to pinpoint exactly where you're at. Um, and if I can do it, the government can do it. Uh, and that's not for everybody, but most internet users, I could actually find out exactly who you are and what you're doing if I really want to. But I have better things to do with my time. And I think that's going back to my original part about this. Marketers don't care about whether or not you, you are doing something this way or that way. All they care about is, is my content serving you and are my sources of traffic valid? So what marketers care about are things like, okay, I'm buying, let's say I went to Google and I used PPC or pay-per-click advertising and I buy the term survival training. And, I, and I, so when people start survival training into Google, it, not in the organic results, but in the in the paid advertising, my site now comes up, and I'm paying a quarter, fifty cents, a dollar, whatever it is a click to be as ranked as high as I want in that advertising. Well, I want to know as a marketer when I spend my money to bring you to my site for survival training. Do you join my email list? Do you sign up for my RSS feed? Do you comment on my blog? Do you become a member of my? Do, is it worth my money? To buy that traffic. That's what people want to know. So a lot of the privacy concerns are overblown. But then when Google starts doing things with this integrated stuff, where they're tracking you across you know, 20 different platforms and they're using the analytics data that the marketer is getting for free from them. They get the software for free and put the code on your site, but Google has access to that now so that, that they can, that starts to bug me a little bit. But I, I think the, the, the premise that you can truly be completely anonymous online today is, is only a premise, but there are steps you can do to make it easier. Private browsing in Firefox is a step in the right direction. It really is. Um, 
that that's that that can do that for you. Um, using a proxy when you're running certain searches, you prefer somebody not know that you ran can help, but it's still on your computer. I mean, everything you do on your computer is on your computer. So the question is, do you want to? Do people want to know this because they're legitimate bad guys that are trying to protect themselves? Well, if that's the case, I have no desire to help, right? But if they want to know this just because of basic liberties and civil liberties, and saying, hey, look, if I happen to be very, very pro-gun or pro-life or or pro-choice or whatever it is, I don't care what your political, and I just would prefer not for it to be, you know, in somebody's database somewhere in some future administration decides we want to know who these people are and target them for. Anything from just you know a campaign of misinformation to something more nefarious, then I want to help. And those are some things that you can do: proxy browsing, fake identities, uh, and using yes some of the privacy tools, and they'll help some. But never assume ever online that you're anonymous. Never, because uh, I've had people give me shit as stalkers, and uh, you know kind of basically threaten me and do stuff like that. And uh, within a day, I've been able to email them and say, look, dude, here's where you live. This is your address. This is your real name. This is how old you are. This is why you're full of shit. And uh, if you continue to do this, I can have the police at your door tomorrow morning. So quit harassing me, quit threatening me, and quit stalking me. And I'm talking, for me to go, just so you guys feel comfortable, for me to go to that level, these have been people that have threatened to do me harm or do my family harm. And it's very interesting what happens when they find out, hey, here's a picture of your house from Google Earth. Okay, now I've got you in text threatening me. So if I can do that when I have to, understand that people a lot smarter than me can do that whenever they want to. And and there, there's just a, a, a the belief that you're anonymous online is just not valid under any circumstances. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here. Two years ago, pressure was put on Starbucks stores to become gun-free zones. Uh, they responded by stating that their stores would simply adhere to whatever the laws were in the given states, um, after which some of the anti-gun organizations pursued a boycott on February 14th of Starbucks. In response, many of the uh, Second Amendment supporters decided to do a Starbucks Appreciation Day on Valentine's Day. Uh, this year it is occurring again, and tip off your listeners, as I know many appreciate both coffee and firearms, that they might want to consider uh, making a purchase at Starbucks on February 14th to show their appreciation of Starbucks simply sticking and adhering to the laws. Thanks, Jack. I'll put that on uh, as a reminder about the Starbucks uh, Second Amendment uh, $2 Appreciation Day. And you know the big thing is that if you can, and go anyway, even if you can't get a hold of some, get some $2 bills, uh, turn one over, and you'll see the Declaration of Independence being signed on the back, and go in and spend those. And the caller's right. It's not just about us standing by Starbucks for standing by the Second Amendment the way they have. And, and no, they're not like the, the most amazing you know Second Amendment pro-gun company in the world, but they didn't cave to pressure. It's about also responding with a counter-boycott. In other words, the yuppies are saying on Valentine's Day, we're not going to get to Starbucks until they ban guns. And we're saying, okay, fine, we'll take your place in line, and you won't be in front of us ordering your pain in the ass, half-calf, half-decaf, wisp of cinnamon, latte with a, you know, whatever kind of 
pain in the ass drink, I have to wait for 15 minutes behind you to order and get out of your mouth so that I can go up there and go, yeah, I'd like a, you know, a, a large coffee or a large cafe americano or, or what have you. I like the americano, by the way, guys. Here's a cafe americano is they make a, they make a really strong shot of espresso. And then they just basically stretch it out to a regular cup of coffee uh, by adding hot water to it. And it's it's much better than just a straight brewed coffee. Uh, so maybe pick one of those up. Anyway, um, you know, I, I've had some people feedback to me recently, um, you know, that, that Starbucks is not this super pro-gun com uh, company. I, I don't need them to be a pro-gun company. What I need them to be is not an anti-gun company. And I need them to not cave into pressure from, you know, major movements by groups like the Huffington Post to try to get them to ban guns, which, like the caller said, they can do. And that's what they've done. They've stood up and said, you know what, we're not doing this. We're not caving to your pressure. We'll follow the law of the states that we're in, and that is the law of the land, and we'll abide by it. That's all you can ask for from a company that has to have a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders. And I'm sure there's some shareholders that feel bad about this because they're we're going to lose money over this. Well, you know what? I want to say no, you're not. Because I like coffee, and I like guns, and I like damn good coffee. I'm drinking Starbucks coffee right now, and I didn't pay four bucks for a cup of it. I bought a bag of it, and I make it in my little French press right here at the office. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it's great coffee, and they're a good company, and they do take good care of their employees. And uh, maybe it's time, you know, for us to stand up and do something. So I'm going to do it. I hope you guys do it, too. Just remember, you can't forget it. It's on Valentine's Day. Go down to your local bank or credit union or whoever you do business with that way and see if you can get some $2 bills or, you know, if you've been saving them. Trust me, they're not worth anything, more than two bucks a piece. Um, go get, get one or two of them and just go down there and maybe buy a coffee for someone else, especially if you see a police officer or a member of our military or something like that. And let them know why you're there. Let the clerk know why you're there. And, again, if you get a snotty nose ring clerk that says, well, I don't support it, say, well, you're fortunate that your, your employer is smart enough to do so, and because of that, I'm a loyal customer to you, and that helps your job be more secure. Please think about that before you pop off. I don't think you'll find many of those, except maybe in San Francisco, which I guess it won't matter there. Anyway, now will it? All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from Kansas. I have a uh, question for you about food culture beds. I hear you answering a lot of questions about whether to use uh, logs and wood chips and stuff like that, and you say it, uh, you know, wood chips will shorten the age of the bed and all. My question to you is, when uh, all the wood's broken down in there, it's still a perfectly fine raised bed, right? It, there's no issues there. I, I, we're going to put in a bunch of uh, raspberries, and I just wanted to see what happens when the wood wears out. Thanks for your show, and take care. I do, man, I do get a, a bunch of questions on wood chips and who culture. Uh, the answer is what your wood chips will break down into is a very high-quality, high-carbon soil. Uh, nothing wrong with it. It'll be very, very, very good uh, for growing stuff in. It will. What it won't do is it won't have the same ability to retain as much moisture as it did when it was more of a woody, spongy material. So what you're losing over time isn't quality so much as you're losing that reservoir capability. Think of culture kind of like an in-ground self-watering container. So, you know, if we want to make a self-watering container, we put two buckets together and we fill the bottom with, with water and we create a wicking mechanism so the water wicks up so that I can water it once a week instead of, you know, once a day. Uh, during the hot part of summer, maybe during a, during a cool period of time where it's not getting too much sun, if it was a container like that, I might be able to water once every two weeks or three weeks. If there's some rain once in a while, I might be able to go months without watering it. 
Hugo culture is doing the same thing on a much larger scale. Since the reservoir is bigger, there's more water being held, it lasts longer. So when I put wood chips down there, they're going to do the same. They're wood. They're going to do what wood does. They're going to decay. They're going to get spongy. They're going to hold moisture. They're just going to break down quicker than a big giant log. So the, the duration of time they'll do that will last. Now, raspberries and blackberries, extremely hardy. Extremely hardy plants. Uh, extremely hardy perennial plants with massive aggressive crowning uh, that spreads out deep runners and deep roots. So what does that mean? That means in a good, well-fertile uh, soil uh, with a reasonable amount of moisture anyway, you could probably just stick them in the ground, and once you got them through their first year, they're going to be fine anyway. So using wood chips for that type of an arrangement, it probably won't matter. Because what you will have is very high quality, high organic matter count soil. And if you keep amending and adding on top of it, so you keep dropping compost and organic matter. So I've got my big reservoir wood chips down there. I've got my layer of humus and my layer of compost down. I'm planting into that. Then on top of that, I go another layer of compost for nutrient value. And then I put a big layer of wood chips on top or any other mulch. I don't care if it's straw mulch, whatever, but I put a big layer of mulch down. As that mulch breaks down over the years, I keep adding more mulch. Once in a while, I pull the mulch back. I can give it a top dressing of compost, and I keep doing that. And, you know, those wood chips might last two, three, four years down there, depending on what kind of wood chips there are, how many, how deep, all that stuff. Well, by the time they actually break down, I've got so much aggressive growth of those perennial plantings with so much root mass going so deep and such high-quality moisture-retaining soil anyway, it probably doesn't matter. Now, if I'm going to walk out there and plant an annual crop like tomatoes every year, I'm going to have to at some point pull that stuff back and, in, in a sense, recharge that bed uh, and put more wood wood material down in the ground. So there you go on that one. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Gordon from Maine, Maine man from the forum. Uh, I just had a quick question. Uh, my ass clown governor here in Maine uh, just rejected uh alternative energy bill and his reason for doing that uh, he said that the PUC said that uh, it would increase uh electricity by uh 20% over across the board i was wondering if you could comment on that and why and explain why a governor would do that uh as far as I know, alternative energy has always been something that uh, we should be striving for, and uh, he shot it down. Uh, appreciate your comments. Thank you. Bye. When I first heard that call, I thought, well, that's typical. This guy doesn't want people to lose business because it's going to produce a surplus of energy. Uh, and it sounds like a typical thing that uh, politicians will do to protect existing uh, uh, business. And I think that there's some of that, but the caller didn't get it quite right. When I actually looked this up, it's not about producing 20% more energy. It's about a state-level mandate that would require the uh, state of Maine to produce at least 20% of its energy from alternative sources by the year 2020. So it would be, thou shalt produce at least 20% of thy energy by 2020 from sources like wind and solar. And thou shalt improve thy energy efficiency. That would be a state level, not a, you know, we suggest or we're going to incentivize. It would be a shell, 
right? And in legal language and in code language and things, when you say shall, that is an absolute. It will be done. Thy will, right? Like old Old Testament stuff, thy will be done. Thy will is that thy shall, right? Okay, so let me give you kind of the two sides of this from a report on the Morning Sentinel, which I guess is a, a main newspaper. Um, and I'm just going to read it. This is not my opinion. I'm just going to read it verbatim, and then I'll tell you what I think about uh, after I read it. Portland, a ballot initiative for renewable energy that supporters say can gradually lower electricity rates while reducing Maine's dependence on imported fuel is actually, quote, the the single largest job killer, end quote, Maine has faced in years and will make rates rise. Governor Paul LePage told a gathering of the state's uh, real estate industry on Thursday. If the measure gets on the ballot in November and wins voters' approval, he said, it will force people and businesses to leave for places that have lower energy costs. This will destroy the state of Maine, he said, appealing to a crowd to fight the initiative. LePage gave the opening address at the Maine Real Estate and Development Association annual forecast conference. A record turnout of 650 businesses and industry professionals gave the governor a standing ovation when he introduced at, when he was introduced at the Holiday Inn by the Bay. LePage's comments escalated his attack on the proposal by a coalition called Maine Citizens for Clean Energy. The group, which includes environmental activists and wind power developers, is collecting signatures for a ballot initiative aiming at requiring 20% of Maine's electricity to come from renewable sources by 2020 and to require further investments in energy efficiency. LePage has called for the proposal, LePage has called the proposal a scam that benefits a few wealthy people. He told the group that the plan would add 40 million to 80 million a year to Maine's electricity costs, which he said already are the 12 highest in the nation. It's a loss for the state of Maine, and I urge you to fight it, he said. Advocates of the initiative said his remarks that after his remarks, the governor is misinformed. I think it's a nice way of saying somebody's lying. I'm sorry, there's a little commentary. Back to the article. They cited a draft report released a week uh, last week by Public Utilities Commission and done at the request of the legislature. That independent study showed Maine's renewable energy policies, coupled with similar power purchase requirements elsewhere in New England, could create 11,700 jobs in Maine building wind and other renewable energy products. The work would also increase the state's gross domestic product by 2%, more than $1 billion, according to the London Economic International LLC of Boston. Quote, I'm puzzled why he thinks it's a job killer, end quote, said Beth Nagussi, main director of Environmental Northeast. Quote, this is a job creator, end quote. During his talk, LePage held up the state's electricity rates as a threat to business retention and expansion. He quoted higher rates that quoted higher rates that Tam Brands, a manufacturer in Album owned by Procter and Gamble, pays compared with other company plants that get that compete for capital. He said energy costs are one reason. Advanced Pierre Foods, which brought the Barber Food Factory in Portland last year and consolidated the operation, moved some of the production to Oklahoma. LePage didn't mention that electricity costs are falling for Maine businesses and industry because of low natural gas prices. The PUC announced Wednesday that the standard offer rate for medium commercial customers served by Central Maine Power Company will drop 23% in March. The governor also contended that if the ballot issued is successful, state government will lose control of its ability to regulate electricity rates. He said that the task would shift to the Efficiency Maine Trust, the quasi-state agency that oversees conservation and efficiency. 
That statement was refuted by Michelle Stoddard, Energy Efficiency Maine's Executive Director. Uh, Michael, I guess it's Michael Stollard. He said he read the ballot proposal and nothing indicates that his agency would have any change in its power or duties. Quote, someone on the governor's staff needs to fact check that, end quote, he said. In response to a question about how, Maine, how to lower Maine's electricity cost, LePage noted the state's effort to encourage natural gas pipeline development and promise of wood pellets and off-peak electrical storage heat. He also took a shot at conservation efforts, which he said, quote, come at a price, end quote. Pointing to the incandescent chandeliers in the Holiday Inn by the Bay, LePage said light bulbs give off heat, and if they were replaced by energy-efficient lighting, it would take more oil to warm the space. That notion was also disputed by Stoddard, who noted that lighting and cooling, not heat, are the largest expenses in most commercial buildings. I'm not sure I believe that in Maine. I'm not sure. Commentary there, I'm sorry. Back to finish it up. Using the money from electricity bills, Efficiency Maine has been helping to subsidize the price of compact fluorescent bulbs. Mainers brought 1.5 million of the bulbs last year, and Stoddard said they remain the state's best source of energy savings. If people want to heat their buildings with lights, they are free to do so. He said it's just the most expensive way to heat. So there you go. All right, um, so my view on this. I think both sides are probably in some level full of shit and some level right. I think that a lot of times these uh, energy conservation groups are looking to make lots of money for companies like GE that build wind turbines. But on the other side, if the wind turbines make electricity and it lasts and it makes us independence from fossil fuels, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just they like to make us have to pay for it uh, in, in more than one way. So I don't know here. This is a main issue. Let me tell you what I actually like about this issue. Maine's citizens are going to get to make the choice. Uh, if there's enough citizens to get it on the ballot, it'll get on the ballot. If it gets on the ballot and enough people in Maine want it, they get to vote for it. If they don't want it, they don't get it. Washington, D.C. is not telling Maine you have to do this. This is a state issue. So I think the people of Maine owe it to yourselves to get as informed about this as you can. Let me tell you guys something about Maine a lot of people don't know. Maine is really kind of not really Maine. Maine is almost northern and southern Maine. Um, southern Maine is often referred to as uh, northern Massachusetts by those in northern Maine. In fact, they have a name for people in southern Maine that's not very nice. It's not my name, so don't get mad at me when I tell you what it is if you live in Portland or the surrounding area. You know what they call you. They call you mass holes. They basically said all the people from Massachusetts moved to the southern Maine and ruined it. Um, and there's a big difference there. If you go to southern Maine, it's very much like a lot of the rest of the country. It's more rural. It's not as big. It's not a huge metropolis, but it is for the area. You go into northern Maine, people are very, very self-sufficient and self-reliant, and a lot of them are highly off-grid. And they also get most of their electricity from where? Canada. Yep. The U.S. electrical grid does not extend into northern Maine. They get their electricity, where they get electricity anyway, from Canada's grid. Now, this actually, to me, is a big reason to look at producing more energy domestically in the state of Maine at a state level because you're already in a point where your state is supplied by two different nations for your power and producing 20% of your own power through alternative energy within your state's borders might just be a good idea. I also think there's probably tremendous opportunity to put wind energy in Maine because you have a great big cliff-type coast 
and there's a lot of wind energy there that can be absorbed. And I think you can actually do more with solar than most people think you can in Maine. So I'd love to see more alternative energy in Maine and everywhere else. I'm not convinced the government, governor, though, as the caller said, is just a complete ass clown. I'm not sure. I don't have enough information yet. The both sides are telling completely different stories, which is typical in politics. It's up to you guys in Maine over the next year to figure out what the truth is, and I'm going to tell you what the truth is, uh, at least not really what it is, but I'm going to tell you where you're going to find the truth. Somewhere between the lies on both sides. Somewhere in between both sides' bullshit lies the truth. And now since this is a state-level issue, this is how a republic is, and this is like a civics lesson here, this is how a republic is supposed to function. The state makes this decision for themselves. It's not a federal mandate. Now, you folks in that state, you owe it to yourself to become informed and either get behind it or fight it. But don't get behind it because some guy from some you know alternative energy coalition told you to, and don't fight it because a governor said it's going to kill jobs. Both sides have an agenda. You determine the truth for yourself. That's being free and liberated instead of being told how to think, and that's what America is supposed to be about. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. I used to think that uh, 5.56 by 45 millimeter NATO was the same thing as a 223 Remington. Actually, I found out that they're a little bit different. The 5.56 round um, is a little bit hotter usually than the 223. And uh, it's a bad idea to put a 5.56 round military surplus or whatever into a 223 rifle. But it's uh, safe, from what I understand, to put a 223 into a 5.56 chambered rifle. It's, 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 it's very confusing, and I just want to make everyone aware that there is slight differences. And Wikipedia has an excellent write-up on it. All you have to do is type in uh, dot .223 and hit enter, and it'll tell you uh, more specifically the differences between those two rounds. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Well, good call. Let me say that the uh, the differences are real. The concerns are legitimate. And in some ways, the concerns are overplayed. Um, there is a difference. And I'm going to tell you, the primary difference in the cartridges is not really the external dimensions of the cartridge. There is some slight varying dimensions in the uh, the throat of the chamber uh, on the uh, the AR style military spec rifles versus a sporting 223. But the main difference is that the the brass is actually thicker in a mil spec case because the brass is thicker and the external dimensions are almost exactly the same. What does that mean about the capacity in volume and space on the inside of the case? might be converse to what a lot of people would think. Instead of having the capacity to hold more powder, it has a reduced capacity. There's actually slightly less volume inside the military spec case. So why does it operate at higher pressures? Because it's not a lot. So usually when we think about increasing pressures and velocities and power in firearms, we think it's a bigger case, more power, more powder, you know, more power, more powder, more pressure, more more energy. Well, there is some truth to that. Obviously, you can push um, a 180-grain, 30-caliber bullet faster out of a great big giant 300 Weatherby Magnum case than you can out of a 308 Winchester case because you've just got that much more propellant. 
But that has its limits. And the reality is if we put two charges that are exactly the same, the same amount of powder into two cases, and one case is just slightly smaller, since there's less area for the gases and the explosive to expand into, you'll get a higher resulting pressure, and that'll give you a higher resulting uh, velocity, all other things being equal, because you have more pressure. So that's what the big difference is, the thickness of the case. Most, uh, in fact, the military spec ARs, And anything else would be mil-spec firing a 5.56 is spec to 60,000 pounds SAMI spec pressure, right? So the safety administration says it's 60,000. The, the spec for a sporting 2.23 is 50,000. That's 10,000 pounds of additional pressures. Some of our older black powder cartridges are only running in the 12,000 to 20,000 range. So it's a significant amount. But the other side of this, Don't think for a minute that when you know Winchester builds a Model 70 or Remington builds a Model 700, that they build that thing to the exact tolerance of 50,000, right? And they and 50,001 is going to start to cause a problem. There are significant additional tolerances built in to make up for things like variation in manufacturing, older ammunition that may have been stored and probably nobody wants to be sued because a gun blew up. So if you told me, Jack. I will bet you $1,000 that if we take a 1,000 different sporting arms of every make and variety we can find in 223 and put one box of shells through each one of them tomorrow morning, we do it with a string and stand back in case we find out that I'm right and you're wrong, that if, if one of them has a catastrophic failure that could cause injury to the shooter, you owe me $1,000. And if, and if none of them do, I owe you $1,000, I would take your bet. I think you could run... A box 20 rounds through every single one of those weapons, and you would never experience a catastrophic failure. You might experience some sticking on ejection and things like that, but you won't have a catastrophic failure. Don't do it anyway. It's dumb. You don't put 5.56 in your 2.23 sporting rifle. Then why did I explain all that? Because if you have no other choice, you do. You can bet your ass if I had me a Remington 700 and a box of 5.56 and I was stuck and that was all I had and I needed it for defense or procure uh, game, I would definitely take the risk and do it and I really wouldn't worry about my face blowing up. And I think that some of the sites that talk about that as it being a legitimate possibility are not wrong, but they're not right. And what I mean by that is that the, the concept that that additional pressure is going to create a catastrophic breach-level failure blowing hot gas and metal into your face from a single use is, is the probability is really low. There's enough probability that you could get a factory error case that pushes 60,000 that it would have happened to somebody. And there's been enough people doing it for long enough that if it was common, it would be happening often. But what can happen is the person that just is a numbskull and insists this is okay and does it over and over and over again over time, those additional pressures wear down the gun and create damage to the gun, leading to either weapon failure or catastrophic failure eventually. So in an emergency situation, in a true emergency, I would do it. And in anything else, I would not. And everything I just said can basically be said for the 7.62 versus the 308 Winchester. It's almost the exact same issues. Now, does that mean you can't use mil-spec brass to load for your sporting weapon? Uh, almost, there's almost unanimous agreement in everybody that knows anything about this. As long as it's, it's conventionally primed so you can deprime it and put a new primer in it, the answer is you absolutely can. 
The first time you shoot it, it should be full length size versus neck size. And that's true in any shell that hasn't been fired in the exact chamber you're reloading for. And what I mean by there's two ways you can size a, uh, a cartridge when you're reloading. One is you just resize the neck. The other one is you resize the entire case. Once you've fired it in a gun and it's going back in that same gun, you can neck size only, and that actually helps improve accuracy for some reasons we won't get into. But if you're doing this, right, we have that reduced capacity inside the cartridge. So what you need to do to stay safe with this is reduce maximum loads in your manual by 10%. And you'll probably end up with equivalent velocities and pressures with 5.56 brass that you would get from 2.23 brass. The best thing to do, of course, is 2.23 goes into 2.23, 5.56 goes into 5.56. But there is a big case to be made for the fact that if you do a lot of shooting with a sporting 2.23, that the brass is really cheap. However, unless you're shooting something like a Mini-14... Most of these bolt guns and all, you're not doing that high volume of shooting, so get a couple hundred rounds of brass and you're good. Uh, I guess some of your prairie dog shooters and all, you know, it might change. Now, conversely, just what the caller said, though, if you want to take your 223 Remington and throw it in your AR, you can do that all day long. You might get some ejection issues here and there. It's not real common, but you might. But it's not going to create any kind of danger or damage or, or problems for you. With that, I think we got one more call today. Let's go ahead and take it. Jack, I've got two questions. The first, you talk about mulching with wood chips up to six inches deep on the garden. I've done that. My question is now, what next? The wood chips aren't going to break down by the growing season. Do I put dirt over top of them? Do I plant the seeds right into them? I'm just not quite sure where to go from here. Second question, on hugaculture. I know you're saying we're making it too hard, but a slightly different angle. I take it, I'm taking some trees out of the yard. Is there any reason I can't... Ha build a culture bed over a close-cut stump. That way, have three or four small beds around the yard where the trees used to be. Then as the wood breaks down and utilizing the existing root structure of the tree, use that as a culture bed. And finally, four months ago, I took your advice and started writing a blog, tracemypreps.com. Sixty posts later, I'm still having a lot of fun Learned a bunch, and it's going strong. And I wanted to thank you for your motivation in helping me do that. Thank you. Now, see, some of you think it's hard to get your question or comment in in the two minutes that the voicemail system gives you. This guy got two questions and a point in in one minute. So if you know what you're going to talk about when you call and you're prepared, you can knock out some stuff, and you can trick old Jack into giving you three answers instead of one. So there's a good example. Let's do it for you. Okay, wood chips, what do you do? Pull them back to expose the soil and plant down into the soil and leave them basically like a little wall, right? So you want to plant down into the chips, but you don't want, sure, little tiny fragile plants when they first start growing. You don't want to bury them with big old heavy wood chips, so just pull them back. Plant, and as the plant grows, then slowly, gently push them back around your plants as they grow and expand. So it's that simple. Let's say you wanted to do something, though, like, because here's what I did last year. I wanted to plant a row of peas, a conventional row of peas, right, sweet peas. In fact, I wanted to do two rows of peas. So what I did is I took my hoe and I, I pulled back the wood chips like a furrow, like you would in the soil. And then I just put my wood, my peas right on top of the soil. I didn't even dig the soil at all. And I pushed back maybe about a half an inch to an inch of wood chips into the furrow, and I left the furrow open. And then when the peas got high enough that I could push the wood back around the base, I just filled it, backfilled it in. So you open it up just enough to get your plants in, 
So you, you would almost think about it like you're creating little craters like on the moon. You plant in the bottom of the crater, and when the plant exceeds the rim of the crater, backfill it in. When it's, only, when it's just at the top of the crater, backfill it halfway. It's real, real simple. It, it, I know that when you're sitting there with this little tiny lettuce seed, you're thinking, man, this just doesn't make sense. How's that little, little guy going to get through all this big, heavy wood? Give him a little pathway to come up through and backfill him as he comes up, and you won't have any problems. And if you watch Jeff Lawton do a garden where they use straw for mulch instead of wood chips, you'll see him do the exact same thing. The straw is 12 inches thick. And they just, there's a little, little pocket hole there, and you plant, you can use straw or wood to do this. I just like wood because it lasts longer and it's cheaper and easier to get your hands on generally because a lot of us can make it for ourselves. It, I could make a good case though for your vegetable gardens to use straw versus wood. I really could. If you can get it, it's not a bad idea. I just use wood because it's, I rent a shredder a couple times a year and make all I want. So that's, that's part of why I, I use wood. Um, next up, on your stump question, the answer is absolutely yes. When Paul Wheaton was on the show and first introduced Hugoculture to the audience, he mentioned, I don't remember if it was Fukosa, uh, Fukuora, or whatever, how you ever said, Makabusa Fukuora, I guess, the, 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 the guy over in Japan that did the One Straw Revolution, if it was him or someone else in either China or uh, uh, Japan that had taken to planting catalpa trees, which is a tree that's real common here in the United States, which some people call a bean tree. It has these huge leaves, gets these big beans, grows really, really fast. And, and, and it breaks down rather quickly as well and forms a huge, massive root structure really quick. So what this guy, whoever it was, was doing was planting several of them, letting them grow up to a certain height, cutting them down, taking them for the timber, because it's actually a decent timber tree, and then just mulching and composting right on top of the stumps and planting into that just like you're asking so you can do it. Um, my one statement would be, You got to make sure you don't have a tree that really aggressively coppices. You want something that when you close cut it and cover it up, it's going to die. Because if it doesn't die, it ain't going to break down. So there might be some things you could do to accelerate that. Like, I don't know, get yourself a great big drill. Get yourself a great big drill bit, I guess I should say, and your cordless drill, something like a half-inch diameter, nice good foot-long bit, and drill five or six holes right into the center of that stump. And that might help accelerate water down into there and, and accelerate the death decay process a little bit for you. I've never done it, but I can tell you it works. And I can tell you it's nature's hugel culture. If I walk into any forest that was timbered 10, 15, 20 years ago, or any forest where some trees have fallen, I'll find two types of natural hugel culture. I'll find places where the fallen tree has landed. And organic matter has accumulated. I'll find even places where that tree has basically turned itself, if it's a good steep environment, and ended up stuck on contour and made a contour hugel bed. And then I'll find the stump that that tree left when it fell over. As long as it didn't uproot when it fell over, it actually it broke or was cut or whatever. And in that stump, I'll find stuff growing right up out of it. Uh, I've got pictures in one of my presentations of stumps in my backyard that's got new little trees growing straight up out of the stump. It's a very, very common thing. In the words of Jeff Lawton, a forest grows on a fallen forest. So you absolutely can do that. The only thing is you got to make sure the dadgone thing's dead or it's not going to do what you want it to do. Uh, it's not going to break down. Covering it up, robbing it of light, possibly, again, coring some holes into it, 
all ways to help accelerate that process and make sure it's dead. Some trees really coppice aggressively. It might take five or six times of cutting the coppicing before it'll die for you. You can go ahead and plant into it. You can go ahead and do it, but you're going to have to give it uh, supplemental watering at, at a much higher level until that tree's dead. And in fact, even if it is dead, you're going to be in a situation where, like most culture with fresh cut, you got at least one year before the hugel culture does what you want it to. You've got a garden for a year, and then you've got your permaculture system, you know, going forward after that for the length and duration of what's in there. That's why I like to use already fallen, half rotten wood when I build my hugel culture beds. They start working immediately. Yeah, they don't last as long, but again, like I talked about it with an earlier question, if you're planting deep rooted perennials into them, well, they give that thing plenty of time to establish itself. With annuals, it becomes a little more critical. Last Last on your blog, hey man, congratulations on committing, getting 60 posts done, that rocks, that sounds like you're doing about one a week, that's like what I think if you want a successful blog or business or anything online, once a week content minimum, once a day even better, but congrats for doing that, we'll check your site out, I'll even do you a favor since you made such a great call, I will put a link to your blog in today's show notes so that people can go over there and check out your blog. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for